you. And I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? What about the warrior? Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zach. Monday, December 1st, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. Um, Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. All right, it's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Suck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show... It's changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show focuses on the amazing, powerful organization called Critical Mass. Critical Mass is a powerful coalition of advocacy organizations in the young adult space dedicated to improving the lives of young adults. Join us as we welcome President and CEO, the one and only Heidi Adams, to discuss their mission, impact, focus, and the future of the Young and Cancer Movement and an advocate spotlight tonight on custom wig maker, hairstylist of the stars, including our very own former co-host here, Annie Goodman, the wonderful Mariah Beerman. Hello, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving. Good evening. Yes. How was your, uh, your Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, Sean Spiro? Hello. Good evening. Let's start with Kenny because I know you are. I sufficiently uh, tryptophan. I was gonna say, like, well, you the, the the person, the primary person in your life is a chef, so I'd imagine that you, uh, yeah, engorge sufficiently. Yeah, well, she uh, she was gonna make three pies, but only wound up making two pies. So uh, that was, a, <laughs> you know, two pies are better than no pies. Calories but, lost. <laughs> yeah, I, I just literally had a sliver <laughs> of it. So I saw you, you did a good job, and I understand a lot of your uh, your family was in town. Yeah, everybody uh, hung out. Nobody threw punches. It was uh, <laughs> it was all all good. You know it's a successful Thanksgiving when when the Kane family does not throw punches. Yes, exactly. And uh, Mal, how'd you uh, how'd you wind up doing? Um, I only made it to two out of my three Thanksgiving meals. That's right. You had three meals lined up. Yeah, I was so tired by the end of the second one, I decided to skip the third. However, I did carve my first turkey. With a, a real knife, electric knife? With a real knife. Oh, wow. Yes. How'd you do? I actually did quite well. I was pretty surprised because I tend to be a little klutzy. Didn't <laughs> lose any fingers. No one was injured. No bloodletting by accident? No bloodletting. The pe- 
turkey was edible, so it was good. Wait, so you had you you had the potential to have I would imagine the world's first Thanksgiving dinner crawl. No, actually, I tend to have a Thanksgiving crawl every year. This oh. is the first year that I did not have more than two Thanksgivings. Oh, okay. Yeah, the original plan, there were potentially five, then I narrowed it down to three. <laughs> oh, boy. And by the end of two, I just could do no more. So just pure lethargy, a, a caloric lethargy. Yeah, well, you you had, got a stagger throughout <laughs> the day. You part of a course here and part of a course there. Right, right. Um, but commuting from Brooklyn to Long Island sort of took that potential for the third course out. You should start a nonprofit for just multiple Thanksgivings and then re, you know, repurposing your unused Thanksgivings. Yeah. Well, the bright side there, though, with the multiple meals was I am being fed from my family for the rest of the week. It's great. Good for you. Yeah. And you have leftovers until next Thanksgiving. I definitely have leftovers to at least last me the next couple of days. Right. Yeah. And uh, Sean, how was your, uh, you can choose the microphone that you wish to speak in. I got one to the left and one to the right. I went right. right. I went right. What'd you do? I, uh, I, you know, did the standard meeting up with family, eating lots of food. Got to meet my cousin's uh, eight-month uh, son, Nathan, for the first time. Cutest oh. kid ever. Excuse me. Yeah. And so I would take umbrage with that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> a little competition. Yeah. Third, third cutest kid ever. All right, fine. Approved. Yeah. Good for you. And uh, what is this award you're up for on Facebook or something that I voted for you? Oh, it's yeah, you're not even reading it. <laughs> um, I, I have a, somewhat of a bucket list, and, and one of them is to go dog sledding in an Arctic tundra. So there's a uh, contest to get get a spot to represent the U.S. of A. Ironically, um, that's on the bottom of my list. <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to earn a spot to represent the U.S. of A. Uh, for the Fjallraven polar 2015 it's 300 kilometers five days of being out in an arctic tundra so you are one of how many americans competing for the u.s spot i think there's like 69 70 right now i'm ranked eighth so oh uh up there all right yeah is so. there like a url like a sean shapiro.org slash vote we should create for you it's not so easy, but, uh, but we could we could potentially make something. And it's the Flurgen Jurgen Fjorden, Fjorden <laughs> something. It's uh, Fjallraven is a uh, outdoor sporting uh, clothing company. Like based the Dick's in Norway. company of the Dick's Sporting Goods of of Norway. It's a little bit more. Dick's with umlauts. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like you heard it here, folks. <laughs> No, it's like uh, it's the brand. It's an eight hundred dollar parka type of oh, company, okay. like one of those. Got it. They're really good quality. But right. thank you, thank you for the shout out. Yeah, I mean, I I'm, was like, what is this? And it looks pretty cool. And uh, you're you have this photo of you like hang gliding from <laughs> Brio. I'm like, all right, this guy's serious. <laughs> How's our liability policy, Kenny? Yeah, I'm any depth. But if it doesn't happen in the office, which if you show up with a wingsuit. Might have to uh, send you back home. Right. Uh, I think we'll be fine. Anyway, we've got uh, Black Friday and something Saturday and something Sunday and Cyber Small Monday. Small business Saturday. Small business Saturday. Um, Happy su- Sunday. Sunday, fun day, regret. Leftovers. <laughs> uh, today's Cyber, Cyber Monday. Monday. And then tomorrow's uh, Giving Tuesday, which, Sean, you have been uh, introduced and brokered back into our ecosystem. What is Giving Tuesday? Yeah, so, you know, you're you're – Full turkey, get that done, Knock, uh, notch that off the list. Do your shopping on Black Friday, small shopping Saturday, and Monday is Cyber Monday. 
But today, Giving Tuesday is all about supporting nonprofits that you believe in and you want to support. Um, so we are actually launching a really great campaign tomorrow um, where we're going to be spotlighting uh, some of our amazing survivors that um, are involved with stupid cancer. So the campaign is 10 survivors, 10 stories, $10 to get busy living. Um, so we'll be showing um, and, and sharing different ways that they get busy living and what stupid cancer means to them. So the idea is to uh, support our award-winning programs and services that we provide to the young adult cancer community um, with a gift of $10 or more if you're able to support. But um, we, we sincerely thank you for everything you, you guys do, and you know we can't do um, what we do without your support. And uh, the website is going to be? It is givingtuesday.stupidcancer.org. Very nice. So just check out. Uh, we'll be posting on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram um, with our posts on, on the hour. Good stuff. Good stuff. And finally, uh, CancerCon is now a week into its launch, I believe, or a week-ish into its launch. And uh, if you haven't already, check it out. Join 500 of your cancer BFFs in the young adult space at the downtown Sheraton in Denver. Uh, for three days of uh, uh, an experience that we like to say will really change your life, and we mean that sincerely, uh, cancercon.org. I think we have, what, like uh, 30 or 40 people registered already, or am I exaggerating? Um, Something in that area. Yeah, it's good. I mean, everything calms down for the holidays, and the people sort of jam back up in January. But 500, that's our number. Looking forward to it, cancercon.org. Uh, and the uh, VIP club, Sean, a little blurb about the... Uh, yeah, so the VIP Club is a fantastic way to get involved and ensure the success of CancerCon. Uh, there's four different levels where you can earn uh, really great rewards up to a $600 travel reimbursement to cover your flight and hotel uh, to attend. And, um, yeah, it's just a great way to, to get out there and um, help support the cause. So check it out. It's uh, cancercon.org, and you'll scroll, and you'll see um, a little blurb on the VIP Club and what it entails. Good stuff. All right, well, with that, let's kick off the show here. Really excited to have our, our, our guest here live in the studio. Uh, Mariah Dearman is a uh, custom wig maker with her own business right here in the Big Apple. She started out in theatrical wig making, but decided it was more meaningful and gratifying to focus on wigs and hair pieces for women and men who've lost their hair from chemo and other medical reasons. A uh, really true call uh, to action, an honorable mission. I, I And, again, she is the... Uh, Stylist for our very own Andy Goodman, former co-host here. We love her. Please welcome live here in studio, Mariah Dearman. You get the round of applause. Thank you. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, so I, let's just hop right into it. I All mean, right. you, you found your calling in in this, uh, I would imagine, in a highly skilled art form yeah. that probably goes under-recognized for its complexities and how far you want to talk about how you trained for this, what got you into this, but to shift gears from the, I guess, maybe the more commercial side, I mean, theatrics, yeah. of course, musical theater, costumes, we everyone understands that, but more to a cause-based application of yeah. this. And, and I understand you've been personally touched by cancer, um, and you've done some really great work, so okay. welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And uh, why don't we just get started? How, okay. how did this... Uh, I, I, were you a musical theater person? Did you, are you? Uh, I'm a theatrical person, a theatrical definitely. Person. Yeah. Um, and so is my family. I'm, I started off singing, but um, I went into uh, doing hair. Actually, I started off as a hairstylist and um, 
wanted to progress with that. So I went to film school in Canada. I went to Vancouver Film School. And I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. No, it was wonderful. Um, I, I was doing prosthetics like um, makeup and character design and that kind of thing, uh, focused on doing movies and, you know, with the intention of doing that. And wig making was part of that course. And um, I made a mustache one day and it sort of changed my life. Um, from was it, was that, it, was point, it Sean's mustache? Yes, it was actually. It was very similar. It was a walrus mustache. <laughs> oh boy! Yes, but um, I managed to tie these little knots. It's one hair at a time, um, really quickly, and my instructors recognized it as a, as a talent. And um, then we went into wigs. And as I was learning these these wigs, I became sort of fascinated with the quality and the believability of them being handmade and sort of that we saw them um on stage and in film and and why didn't I why didn't I know that these existed um and they weren't readily available to the public and coincidentally my aunt got cancer while I was in school and um I was learning to make these wigs and I came home for my mom's uh 60th birthday party she was there and she had a horrible wig and I basically put two and two together um, and worked on her wig for this party, and no one knew that she was wearing one. We kind of ripped it apart, and she went to the party, and no one asked her any questions, basically. She had a day where she she got to forget about it and just have a good time, have a drink, dance with her husband. Feel a little normal. Feel a little normal, and just, you know, not be, not be asked about it every second. And... Um, the next day she came to me and said, you have to do this. And that moment was eight years ago, and it's just sort of been a beeline ever since. I couldn't not do it. I would imagine mm-hmm. it's, a, it's only a very rewarding. Incredible. To give women some dignity, give men some dignity back. Absolutely. When they are not in control of what's going on, where they're going into treatments and they're being poked and prodded and you know, physically they're under stress, mentally they're under stress, um, to even just come in and get a wig um, that looks good, that makes them feel good, that makes them smile, is so rewarding to give them a moment where they're just happy or they feel happy in the process of treatment or recovery or even just finding out. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably rewarding. So let's talk about the art form. Clearly there are costs associated with this, Absolutely. but there's different types of uh, synthetic and real uh, hair that you can use. How do you figure out what works best? Obviously, every person's a snowflake, and you have to figure out what works <laughs> every for every person. person you know, so where are the pros and cons of outside of cost, of course? Uh, of and where do where do you even acquire the materials? Whether it's human hair, animal hair, synthetic <laughs> hair, whatever hair you use. Yeah, care. Um, with with. Specifically with uh, with cancer patients, when they come in, uh, usually they start losing their hair about two weeks after treatment. So what I what I do is really assess not only what their budget is, but what their personality is like. Just like I do with somebody who has hair, you know, do you do you wake up and blow dry it every day? Do you brush it? Do you curl it? I right. mean, how much effort are you really going to put into this? Yeah. Um, and I that, go with the aqua. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> um, 
but I really focus on listening to the person and what they're what they're feeling and what they're going through. Um, a wig can be very uncomfortable because your your follicles are, you know, your your hair's falling out and your scalp is sensitive and so is your skin. So depending on you know, synthetic hair is easier for some people. It's less expensive. Human hair, and people. Some people really just want to see themselves. They want to look exactly the way that they looked. I have a lot of high-profile clients who go back into work, and, I mean, treatment is, like, non-existent. They go to work right. every day. Mm-hmm. They they keep focusing. They get up. They go out, and they live their lives, and that's how they get through it. And so for someone like that, it's a it's a different process. It's um what I call character design, where I take a picture of them before, and I literally hand-make what they looked like. And we do that kind of seamless transition and they, they get to, you know, um, go through their day, you know, without anybody really knowing. Um, I source my materials from all over the place. Hair is actually running out, believe it or not. It is like helium. Yes. There are less and less people. Just like helium. Selling, yes. <laughs> there are less and less people selling helium. Um, there are less and less people um, just in the world, growing out their hair and selling it and not dyeing it and those sort of things. Oh, um, dyed hair doesn't work? No, because for human hair, the cuticle has to be removed. Um, the outside layer of the hair has to go through a bleaching treatment. So if the hair has already been chemically processed, it can break down the integrity. It's very complicated. Is there any kind of um, hair fracking? <laughs> no, 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 there's not. But, but there many... is hair robbing. I mean, there are the, these places um, when I was living in Oakland that were being robbed for hair. I could, I mean, maybe two ounces of virgin hair, which means uncolored, unbleached, un, you know, untouched at 24 inches could be $270. And it takes, you know, five to seven ounces of hair to make a wig. So it is, the the money in it is kind of, Outrageous. I'm, I'm, uh, sorry yeah. not to step on you, but I'm surprised more men aren't embracing like the sell your hair. You know, yeah, it's Fabio. Kind of funny. I I had a bartender from Brooklyn actually, and you may know the bar blueprint. I that, think I've heard of it. That grew out his hair and came in and donated it, and he just does it every five years, and it went to an alopecia um, client that I have in who's a debutante in Texas. And I sent them a picture of each other. It was such a like cool little <laughs> connection to have. But there, there are people that are doing it. If more people knew about it, I think that that would that would be a cool relationship to keep kind of yeah. going in in my process. But um, so as a man, clearly I'm yes, ignorant on a lot of this stuff. And as a bald man, even yes. that much. Are I'm there some hair? Are there? Well, it, yeah. It, 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 <laughs> I'll take what I can get at this point. Twenty years later. Are there women out there growing their hair who do not treat their hair? I mean, is there, I mean, you call it virgin hair? Yeah, I mean, Indonesia, Brazil, of course, India. I don't know if anyone's seen Chris Rock's movie, Good Hair. Um, I heard about the documentary. We yeah. Talk about that, too. It's a great, yeah. it's a great movie, um, great documentary. Uh, I suggest watching it. But he kind of goes into the temples. There, there are people that cut their hair for religious reasons and donate it. Um, the Orthodox community will not wear that hair. Right, they have to cut their hair. Yeah. Um, and wear wigs. Yeah, but they won't wear the Indian hair specifically. It's interesting. Really? Mm-hmm. But it's... The things you learn on the stupid campus. I know, show. I know. Um, so, yeah, it's coming from a lot of different places. It was coming from from Russia, but the economy has changed significantly. Sure. Um, 
So I I do like the idea that people are donating their hair. I mean, for wigs, it's just not abundant and it's not enough. What about little point. girls? The locks of love. That is, is that a is that a a reasonably sized market? Locks of love has um, some controversy going on right now. Um, they have a clause that says that basically they can sell unusable hair, but who would buy unusable hair? I might. For an oil spill maybe somewhere. That's the only other <laughs> right. thing that you can use it for. Sure. But, um, you know, where is where is it going and how much of it is actually turning around and being used for for its purpose, meaning being used for um, people with alopecia and with cancer? We don't really know. And no one's really looking into it and asking. So... What I like about what I do is I know where it's coming from and right. I know what I'm giving to that person because it's being made by me. It's not being made in a factory somewhere. It's, right. it's being made by me. So. Well, I mean, you, you, you physically connect with one person. Yes. Build them a solution for them. Yes. And their world has changed. Yes. Yeah. Are there any horror stories? Um, I would imagine it's well, not all sunshine and roses and unicorns. I can't say any names, but when I, well, I would, first no, I got want here. I want names, <laughs> damn it, names right now. I, when I first got here, I worked for a company that manufactured wigs, and it was a very upsetting experience. Um, I felt like they took advantage of people. And um, part of that, um, you know, inspired me to start my own business in New York, but there are a lot of places out there that are selling things for a lot more money because people don't know the value or the difference between what they're getting when it comes to a wig. It's sort of like, oh, you need a wig. And no one ever thinks about that like right. before it, it happens, maybe for fun, but never for the specific purpose that you need it for. So, so this is a quality of life issue for anyone that Absolutely. loses their hair for any medical condition. <clears throat> Are you involved at all in the education of the process, the navigation? How do you, how do doctors remember? Yeah. Is it, has it become, it's maybe rhetorical, <laughs> has it become common knowledge that when a woman undergoes chemotherapy with the threat of losing her hair, a doctor, a nurse, and or a social worker treating that patient knows here's some credible places to go. This is a go. great question. I mean, does it's, that, it's my does purpose. That yeah. It really is my purpose as a human being to educate. Yes, it exists. There are a lot of wig companies that are sort of locked into that referral system already. Right. Um, I don't think that there's a standard yet. It's improving. Yeah. And the way that it's improving is I send people like Annie back to her doctor and her doctor's like, Oh my oh my god, why aren't you losing your the hair? Word of mouth really. That that helps, yes. Um there are organizations I'm working with like T N B C um they have doctors. I've worked with um a woman named Doctor Vidot. I mean it, it really is oncologists, um and that sort of thing that's changing the the information that's coming out. Education with my client is the biggest impact. Right. Um and follow through. So like after they get the wig, I you know, I keep seeing them. It's not like it's over all right. the way until their hair grows back. It's like, well, first your hair is going to fall out and then your scalp's going to get all flaky and then you're going to, you know, have hot flashes and this and this and that. And then you're not going to know what to do with this thing, you know, how to wear it, how to wash it, um, any of that stuff. So I think by empowering each patient in each person that you're, you're you, you know, that's, how I'm educating people. Um, I did 
just recently get approached by a large hair company named called Renee Furter, and they do a lot of hair loss um, products. They 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 have vitamins and things like that. It's not cancer based, but they're starting to integrate me into their education also. So I think it's just starting to change. Right. Um, but I feel like like my mission is to be the voice for that to change it. Do you feel like it's an entitlement that anyone that loses their hair from cancer shouldn't have to pay for this service? Yes, absolutely. So where are we at in terms of any, is that a legislative thing? Is that it is a, a legislative okay. thing. Are you involved in that at all? Yes. So um, as a matter of fact, um, I have a, friend, a good friend um, in D.C. I just who works for um, Takano, Congressman Takano, and um he introduced me to a staff member for Carolyn Maloney. You have to work with your congressperson. Of course. Um, and I, it's a long-term goal. It's lobbying. There's so many other things involved with cancer sure. that are, I think, you know, on a different scale that they're pushing for to advocate first. But it's definitely present. I had... Um, I can't remember what insurance company it is, but I did recently, and I have had several insurance companies pay for up to $1,500 for a wig. Um, is that a policy directive that they're offering? It clients? is, and it's so random. It's like I have – so what we do is I have the patient go to their doctor, and they they ask for a cranial prosthesis. It's technically a prosthetic, right? They give them a prescription code for the wig. And then they submit it to their insurance companies, and depending on the insurance company, um, they get something or they get nothing, but there's no consistency going on with it. Right. But the more people that know that and the more people that apply, I feel like the more that it becomes, you know, a pressing issue. Um, there are women that I know who have said to me, I don't want to go through chemo. I don't want to lose my hair. I don't, I'm not going to do it. So they're willing to risk their life. Yes. Right. That's so important. Yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, one of the things that <clears throat> strikes us today, we, we get this a lot, much of the new chemotherapy does not make you lose your hair, but it makes your hair thin enough where you still would need the wig. We're not quite at that point now where it right. doesn't make you lose all your hair. Some right. of it makes you lose none of your hair, but right. most of it still makes you lose. A little bit, just enough, I would yes. imagine, to make you uh, uncomfortable yes. with the way you look. I had a young girl, maybe 22, um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it thinned all over. But, you know, she still wanted to wear a wig. She was a teacher around right. little kids. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be scary to kids. Yeah, she wasn't, she actually, you know, her character was like, oh, well, whatever, I can wear hats and I'll wear a pink one and I'll wear a red one yeah. and whatever, but the children are going to treat me differently if I if I have hair like this. But yeah, I see it less and less. You know, I wish it didn't happen at all. Of course. You know, I, I mean, I mean, 100%, but... Yeah. um. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just such a part of the, the the psyche when it happens. You look in the mirror, you're you're going through treatment, and women sometimes they lose their breasts, they're they're losing their reproductive system, and then they lose their their hair, and right. they're 21 years old, yep. and they're going to school, and they're working, and all of a sudden, you know, I mean, their lives are just completely so uprooted. different. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and and again, mm -hmm. we're. Your average client is younger, older, 
you know, the lately, gamut. lately um, bec- you know, because of Annie and um, and a few other clients, I've had a lot of young women. Um, but I do. I have. I've done everything. I've had male clients, um, right. men who've gone through cancer, and of course, I have a lot of alopecia um, sure. clients, and that is that's permanent a lot of times. So, um, but the young women, I feel, are um, very impacted. Well, it's very different. We, we try not to pit like the age versus the age. Yeah. It, we're not any more special than the sixty-five. No, not women, at all. But we're very different. And, when, and it matters that we're different. Yes, You're at a different place different in your place. life. Yeah, exactly. You know? So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, it is one of the most um, wonderful feelings, honestly, to be able to give somebody their confidence. I, I, I want to wrap with the flip side of this yes. because what it, we've also found is that by giving someone the dignity of looking the way they want to to make them more comfortable given what they're going through, they're often then stigmatized the other way, that they don't look sick and there's nothing wrong with you and why are you complaining? And I think that that's a consequence that we're willing to accept. A lot of people just don't look sick when they have cancer anymore, thankfully to services like these and chemotherapies that are not that toxic. Right. And a lot of these immunosuppressant therapies out there that, that without getting all scientific yeah. or geeky, they just don't make you look thin and wan, but right. you still have active cancer inside right. your body. I had a friend doing trial drugs for liver cancer for five years. Her skin looked better than any of us. Right. I mean, she was like glowing. I yeah. was like, you've got a baby butt skin. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, um, and yet she was very sick. I mean, she's she's terminally ill. She right. passed away. But um, with great skin, with great with, skin, I, Megan had a great skin. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there is a stigma attached to it. I also see this, um, you know, the sh- the showcasing of the bald. I saw it with DM um, when People right, Magazine, yeah, yeah, did you know, bald is beautiful. Yes, it is. Bald is beautiful, and it looks really beautiful photoshopped on the cover of a magazine, and. It might not feel that beautiful when you walk into, you know, Macy's to pick up whatever, right. you know, some socks you're, and a scarf. Or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> you don't get the same response. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I watch it all. I, I see it all. The thing is, is like you have to do what's right for you during that time. And you need as much support as you can around those decisions. And the more help and the more support and the more education and advocacy and all those things, the more decisions you have to make to make yourself feel better and get through it. Amazing. Yeah. And so you have your own eponymous business right now? I do. What's it called? It's called Mariah Dearman Inc. Very original. Very nice. <laughs> and the website, Twitter, everything? Yes. Um, website, my name is not spelled like Mariah Carey. It's spelled M-E-R-R-I-A-D-E-A-R-M-A-N.com. Um, same for the Instagram and the Twitter. Amazing. And yeah. I would, would imagine social media has been good to you. Social media is is getting getting better and better. And my shop is actually located at 243 East 78th Street. There you go. Yep. Mariah Dearman is a uh, hairstylist to the cancer story. So the cancer celebrities <laughs> yeah. out there. Uh, Mariah Dearman, M-E-R-R-I-A, Mariah Dearman. Thanks for being here. You're going to stick around for the rest of the show. Of course I am. Enjoy the rest of of the circus, Mariah Dearman. Thank you. All right, Kenny, let's uh, hit up the news here. 
Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, man. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org. Your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something will be happening in your neck of the woods. And we certainly don't want you missing out. Have a couple of meetups happening. One in Delafield, Wisconsin, and the other in Houston, Texas. And if you'd like to host your own meetup, go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup to learn more. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, yeah, I do what I can. <laughs> Cancer's lonely. We've got a cure for that. Yes, we're talking about Instapeer, our free mobile app that brings instant, anonymous, one-to-one peer support for anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org and sign up to join our beta iOS testing community and immortalize yourself in the app as a beta squad backer with a tax-deductible year-end contribution of $500. All right, we launched a new feed aggregator on Pinterest for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org forward slash feed. Cancer is expensive, and we've got, uh, we're proud to announce CancerMadeMeBroke.com, a national partnership with Give Forward. Andy Goodman did this, by the way. Yeah. Uh, the number one platform to start a medical fundraiser. You didn't ask to get sick, and your community wants to help you. Yes, they do. Visit CancerMadeMeBroke.com to learn more and start your personal fundraiser today. It's always a good time to stock up on stupid cancer gear, especially on Cyber Monday. Visit StupidCancerStore.org anytime. Stay nice and warm with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got our awesome skateboard. We've got Flip the Cancer Bird. That's StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that that is is your Stupid stupid Cancer cancer News. All right. We have a living legend coming on the show today. One of my uh, people like not just call anyone a friend. Like she's a, a, a true friend, a mentor, one of the people that dragged my ass out of the corporate world where I made some money into the nonprofit world where I'm kind of broke. Heidi Schultz Adams, the president and CEO of Critical Mass, which is the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, a 20, she beats into one year, a 20-year survivor of Ewing sarcoma, founder of the first online community for young adults with cancer called Planet Cancer. She literally co-wrote the guidebook on how to do cancer. In your 20s and 30s. Again, my mentor and in a very small club of young adult cancer survivors with twins who started charities. Heidi Schultz-Adams. Hello. Hi. Hi there. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Really, really excited to have you back on the show. There's been so much momentum and so much growth since we had you on the last time. And uh, I'm, I'm still abuzz with the, the conference we just went to. And I, 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 it's amazing. It's been 20 years. The journey we've been on, we've known each other probably more than a decade at this point. What's mm-hmm. transformed, what's, what's transpired, how much has really been uh, done. And I was actually just explaining to someone yesterday about the origins of our what we call a movement and how the uh, the uh, uh, closing the gap report, which I think we could really spend some time touching on, and how much progress has been made from that. Yeah. But let's let let's go back to the uh, the dark ages of Clinton in uh, 1994 when um, you uh, your whole life changed. Oh my gosh! Yes, I was having flashbacks listening to Mariah thinking about about those days the the long the long months of baldness and wishing that I'd known her back then for sure 
it rocks your world. It knocks everything, your legs out from under you, you know. And you know, that cancer diagnosis, and I was diagnosed when I was 26 with Ewing sarcoma, and this is, I mean, if you can even imagine or think about it, you know, the Internet was just born. <laughs> so it was really, really different. And you do feel like the only person in the whole world with cancer. And, um, and you know, then everything changed. Did you have a wig by any chance back then, Heidi? Was that even offered to you? You know, it's so funny. I did. I I did a... Um, I went to get fitted for a wig because insurance was, would cover it, and my my younger brother went with me, and we tried on. You know, the wig shop was kind of gross, but whatever. And we we I tried on all different kinds of wigs, and we were trying to make a joke about it. And you know, I finally picked out one that I thought was the closest thing I could find to my own hair because I really thought I want to look the same just like she was saying i want to i want people not to be able to tell and i think i wore it one time and never wore it again it was just it didn't feel right it was just uncomfortable and then you know when you lose your eyebrows and you have a wig it you just it just doesn't work you know it just doesn't work and so i just i just went bald i went bald i went bandanas i went hats and uh and did that for you know almost a year and a half and then uh, several years later you decided to jump on the very early inklings of the interweb and uh <laughs> <laughs> back when it was called the interweb or the worldwide something. The worldwide uh, web. <laughs> yes, the worldwide web. We used to say www. Right. <clears throat> and uh, you started an amazing sort of, you planted this amazing seed, and it was called Planet Cancer. Tell us about that. Yeah, I just, I mean, my, uh, so many of the young adult advocates I've met in the years since, it's funny how we all kind of gravitate towards the issue that seemed the most primary for us, you know, the one biggest problem that we had in our experience. And for me, it was isolation and not finding any other young people um, my age. And and through my whole experience, I think I met, you know, four other people even close to my age. I was in my mid-20s and, you know, I met a few others, mostly at the very end of my treatment. And, you know, all but one of them died. And so it's just, I just felt so alone. And I finished my treatment and I tried to move on with my life. And I just kept thinking there have to be other people like me. And so slowly over time that evolved and I did sort of, I did meet some other people and realized just the value of having that that connection and, and knowing those people and having those people in my life. And so I thought, well, you know, mostly young people are online, this 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 newfangled thing called the Internet. And so we just started a website. Just I, I started a website just to see what would happen. And it was basically just a bunch of funny stuff that I made up and had made up and, and then um, an email address. And people started writing and people started connecting. And then, you know, we integrated message boards. And I think that was really when the community was born. And um, and it just snowballed. It just really showed that there was this need and that a lot of people besides me felt the same way. 
And you were like the David Letterman of your time in healthcare because you came up with these phenomenal top ten lists and these really you brought humor into a discussion where it wasn't supposed to be funny for the very first time. And I, I really I remember so well when I released my albums and I discovered the Planet Cancer website in probably two thousand one or two thousand and two. Mm-hmm. And I, you you put like a link to my CDs on the the website with some of other I think you call them cancer containers or something like that. Yeah, and cancer containment. You, <laughs> you just found a lot of young musicians who were cancer survivors who had music, and I I was I was I felt just so validated and I belonged somewhere finally. And, and everything we talk about today, a thousand years later. We were there in those moments where we, it was just so amazing to find. I went seven or six or seven years believing I was the only college student that ever had cancer. Yeah. And it was through Planet Cancer and, and other, everything just kind of cropped up at once in like 2001, 2002, that I felt like I belonged somewhere. And well, if I you really remember, got- yeah, if you remember back at that time, it was sort of snowballing because we were starting all of our, these young people, and I really do think, you know, the Internet is what, it was the tipping point because we were finally able to connect with each other and we were finally able to to realize that th- there is a much larger community than we ever thought, you know, feeling like you're the only person in the whole wide world. There's actually a really large community. And right on the backs of that was all this data that was coming out in the medical side. And and it was all sort of coming together at the same time, this growth of these these young adult patient advocates and then this uh, raising, um, growing awareness about the, the data and the real circumstances around young adult cancer, which was that survival rates were not improving, that it should be seen as a different um, population in the cancer community, and and everything sort of came together, um, you know, right around 2004 when um, you know when we we started planning for the Progress Review Group. Right. So it's like you've awakened the sleeping giant. Young adults in this space were never aware that they could belong to something that's unique just for them because up until that time, it was really just little kids and everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yep, and, and you finish your treatment it, and you move on. Mm-hmm. And that's it, get over yourself. We were both told, get over yourself and get on with your life. Right, right, you're lucky. Know that you're lucky and now move on. Right, exactly. So we can get to the origin stories here now because this breakfast club of people who are running nonprofits and doctors who are finally investigating what this means from an age perspective, we're really starting to sort of coalesce in a cauldron of intelligence. And this became something called the Progress Review Group. Tell us about how that started. And then the, uh, I guess the outcome of that yielded the, we started off the conversation by discussing the Closing the Gap study, which literally gave birth to the Young Adult Cancer Alliance at Livestrong. Right. So the Progress Review Group is really the foundational meeting um or that that kicked off this whole thing because it was the first national international even um recognition. Well, I'd say national because there were initiatives that were happening in Australia and in the UK already and some of those folks came over to the Progress Review Group meeting. But it was um 
a progress review group is a state of the science meeting um, that the NCI um, held. They held a few of them on different topics over the years. But this was one of, I think, maybe only two that were not sort of disease-specific. And uh, in conjunction with the Livestrong Foundation, um, the NCI and Livestrong put together this this meeting in Denver. That's funny. It was in Denver. Lots happening in Denver. We've, we've come full yeah. circle. But it was about um, really to see what's the what are the issues, what are the challenges facing this population, and then how can we, you know, what would be the recommendations to tackle those problems. And it was so evident even from the planning, and I don't even know if I ever told you this, but when when they first started trying to pull together to do a lit review or a lit search for research on young adults with cancer, they didn't even have, there were not even search terms in the databases to pull the data on young adults. So depending on how they frame the searches, they would either get two hits or, you know, two million hits. There was nothing in between. And so, I mean, which is, just goes to show how basic the need is to really um, think of this population as different and, and how do you even pull it out? The age ranges were stratified under 18 or over 18. You know, there's no sort of carving the group out in the middle. So, you know, it just sort of said when you, if you're going to address the challenges for this group, you have to start at the very, very baseline. <laughs> and so the meeting was held and there's a report issued and as reports um, tend to tend to do, it was, um, you know, could have sat on the shelf, but then the Livestrong Foundation um, funded the this uh, first strategic planning meeting of um, the Young Adult Alliance, and it was created as um, an implementation body, so the recommendations in that report wouldn't just sit there and gather dust on a on a shelf, that there would be a group of people who cared, who were stakeholders, who really wanted to um, use that report as, as guidance to make a difference. And, you know, that's when we all came together for that first meeting in 2006. Yeah, and I remember that summer was the Livestrong Summit, where we were all kind of meeting for the first time, getting ready to come back and meet in Austin later that year. Um, just, just I think that was the first time I met Tamika, and I, I think I met Doug two years before, but you and I had met. So the, these uh, extraordinary confluences were really starting to come together in the summer of '06. In that first meeting, I remember vividly sitting next to you on a bench somewhere in the hotel, trying to tell you, like, I think I want to do this. But I'm not <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> And you're like, no, Matt, you should do this. I'm like, I was like, okay. focus. <laughs> yes, you should do this, Matt. And I said, okay, yes, Heidi, I'll do this. And that literal <laughs> catalyst for what was then the I'm Too Young for This uh, Cancer Foundation, which gave birth to the OMG Summit and the Stupid Cancer Show that yeah. we're talking to now. Um, and, and I oh, feel you, like I'm a, you knew you knew what you wanted to do. You didn't need me to tell you anything. You want to find a ginger. <laughs> <laughs> I needed to. Yeah, you you helped me find Kenny a thousand years later. Kenny, hi, Kenny. Hey, Heidi, how are you? I've been sitting Good. here in the background. <laughs> no, I mean, in all seriousness, I I give I give credit where credit is due. You you did give me that push in the in the direction that I needed because I really wasn't. I had an idea, but you know, just attending that meeting and hearing from Brandon and Archie, yourself and Craig, 
and and all the people that were there on day one uh, really helped set this up. And, and again, credit where credit is due. So so let's fast forward a little bit because the alliance lasted for a couple of years. <clears throat> you were brought on to Livestrong from Planet Cancer, and what was your role at Livestrong? And I had a few different roles at Livestrong, but they were primarily in the realm of grassroots advocacy, so online and offline advocacy, um, which was really, really interesting and really exciting to to work in that arena um, on, with that type of a platform. You know, with Livestrong had such a broad reach and such a, you know, um, such ambition to help so many cancer survivors, not just young adults, but all cancer survivors and cancer patients. So that was a, I learned a whole bunch and it was a really, really great experience. And um, in during that time, the, the Alliance sort of incubated at Livestrong and it grew over that, the next five years. And, uh, and then the decision was made that the, the field was mature enough and the, the, uh, program had had grown robust enough that everyone thought we think this can stand on its own and so it's a little bit nervous always for for something like that to happen but um when i heard about the decision i thought oh i i'm i sure do miss young adult cancer you know and and my peeps and and it was just not even a it was kind of a no-brainer I thought I need to I need to go with that and I need to uh you know to try and make that happen so here I am yeah and who more qualified to to lead the spinoff the critical mass and uh you've done a great job we just wrapped our you just wrapped you I feel like we're a family here we just wrapped the third annual meeting of critical mass so let's focus on where you're at now. It's been amazing to see how the organization has taken shape, found its focus, really built sort of a nice directional for its growth. Um, so, so in a nutshell, what's the boilerplate for critical mass now? Well, it's really, I mean, it's, it has been a process. A spinoff is sort of a really weird transition because you have to try and sustain the legacy, but then also create your new vision going forward. And so it took, you know, a lot of thought and a lot of um, um, just evaluation. But I think, you know, we've we've wanted to stay true to the original vision, which was, you know, that we are stronger together and that as a community we can accomplish more than any one of us could independently. Um, also trying to address the fact that this population is so fragmented. You know, everyone is so scattered across their pediatric or adult or community and academic or, you know, all the different disease states. So we try to unify the the young adult cancer community, so the stakeholders who are at medical institutions and all the patient advocacy organizations. We we provide the place for everyone to come together. And then um, in, by doing so, we can raise awareness. But I think, you know, the, the sort of new focus that has entered into that original vision is building the evidence base and then using that evidence to drive change. Um, you can only go so far without evidence if you're trying to change a system or change the way things are done. And um, unfortunately, there's still a real a real lack of that. So that's where we've chosen to focus. And it seems like, you know, everyone is on board with that because honestly, you know, rising tide floats all boats and that kind of, that kind of work, everyone can contribute to it and everyone can benefit from it. So, you know, we hope that, that we can continue to press forward with, um, you know, as a community. 
I love that you use that expression because it's a good thing you're not in Austin anymore because there is no water to float any boats. <laughs> That's true. That is true. Yeah, Nashville's got a lot of water, so you're in, you're in good supply right there. I think it's, it was a good decision. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, I'm excited about where we're going. But, it, you know, there was a lot of building at the beginning. It's funny, the first day I walked into the on the job and I looked around my home office, and I'm sure you remember these days, I looked around and I thought, well, I could probably use a telephone number. And... Uh, <laughs> Maybe a printer. A printer would be really good about now. Uh-huh. So it's been sort of build the boat, you know, while you're while you're steering it. But but it's um it's really exciting, and I think we've got some really great um, initiatives that support those goals that I just talked about. And we introduced a couple of them at the conference this year, and so we're really excited about those. And you have a team now. Tell us about your staff. I do have a team. We have uh, the Director of Community Initiatives is Dr. Rebecca Block, um, who has worked in the field of young adult oncology for a number of years now. She's in Portland, Oregon, came out of OHSU. Um, We've got our operations coordinator in Austin, Kate Tolliver, who without whom nothing would ever happen at all. (laughs) And then (laughs) our Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Brandon Hayes-Latton, whom you are very familiar with. Um, and then our social media guru, Justin Azuna, who's at Hey Critical Mass on Twitter, and he's just phenomenal. He's a young adult survivor also. So it's a team, and, and you know, I think we, um, we're we a team, and then I do feel like um, this broader community of people who you and I know so well are, are the bigger team, and that is, you know, equally as important. So it's it's pretty cool to see how far it's come. Yeah, I just want to go back to where I started the conversation about how even back in 2006, we had no idea what we were doing, and we had to basically, you know, just to go back to your search terms, we had to invent language. No one had ever decided to put the words young and adult before the word cancer, and then <clears throat> how do we get that to be adopted? And now it is a an actual clinical term. There's white papers, there's publishing, there's studies, there's outcome data, there's all sorts of, like, young adult cancer is a thing now, right? It is a thing. It is a thing. There's a journal, there's a society, there's lots of articles, there's units, there's programs. It's, it is recognized. It is a thing. We put our stake in the ground, and it is there. It's, and it's amazing. It, and no legislation, no government, no Congress, this is all driven by people like us. Yeah, it is. It's time to take it to the next level, though. I think we've broken through. I mean, you know, and you guys have had a lot to do with that, broken through sort of the public consciousness. But it's, in my opinion, I think now it's time to institutionalize that and make make it where people recognize young adults, sure, but they're still adapting their care or their practice from their normal path. You know what I mean? So it's not just... It's not like, oh, here's exactly how we treat young adults. It's, oh, I'm a pediatric oncologist, and I have a you know, 21-year-old who just walked into my door, so I'm going to adjust what I normally do. We need to create that path for young adults to where it's not, it's known, it's quantified what is supposed to happen, what are the touch points that need to be there. Um, and that's one of our initiatives that we're working on right now is is 
um, to find out, you know, what are those touch points? How do we visualize this journey of a young adult patient? And how can we sort of standardize that so that a, a place can know, here are the, here's the things that need to happen. So um, it's that's a pretty exciting program that we're working on right now. And I think that's the next, I think that's where, you know, the next big change needs to happen, it needs to normalize, right. needs to be institutionalized. <clears throat> And a lot of the research I've been seeing out here now is about this concept of transition. When you are diagnosed as a young, as a child, or in pediatrics at any age, I think pediatrics in some hospitals even goes into young adulthood, 23, 24 years old. Yep. How do you go from that to the world of adult oncology as seamlessly as possible, where the adult oncology world may not be aware of or familiar with what to do? when you now go into this world from that world. I and that's that's a problem as well. I mean, I think just just the and sometimes it should go in the opposite direction. You walk into an adult oncologist and you really should be seen in the pediatric arena. I think that's the thing that we all need to know is what's the appropriate path depending on your your circumstances and your um your needs. Um because it can be really different from individual to individual and um but there are there are certain key factors that need to be taken into consideration. You know, like I was, you were a college student with a brain tumor, and I was a 26 year old with Ewing sarcoma, which is pediatric. And so, where were we supposed to go? You know, what was supposed to happen to us? Right. Right. Exactly. We were out of our out of the league of uh, where we were supposed to be. Right. <clears throat> right. So where? But, go ahead. Sorry, God. Oh no, that's okay. I was going to talk about mission control for a little bit, but go go right yeah, ahead. I, I was just about to tie into that because my, I was going to say, what we what do we have to look forward to? What's in store for critical mass uh, that people can look forward to learning about? Whether they're patients, survivors, doctors, advocates, anybody listening to the show should go to criticalmass.org. What what can we look forward to? Well, the the biggest initiative we have right now, and I think the most important one, is Mission Control, which we just launched um, at the conference. And it's a, a patient resource platform where we've aggregated all of these incredible community resources in the critical mass community into one easily searchable, navigable platform where you give some basic eligibility criteria and it gives you the resources and services that are relevant to you. So no more clicking through dead links or being the, you know, the lymphoma patient in Seattle who gets the breast cancer support group in Atlanta. Like we've we've pulled it all together from within the critical mass community. So hopefully that will make the path a lot easier for a lot of people. Um whatever you're searching for or looking for in the young adult space will be included in there. So we're really excited about about that because I think, you know, a lot of times you you think that there's stuff out there, but it just hasn't been efficient to get passed around one by one. You know, you get the call as much as I do, Matt, where someone will call and they'll and you'll discover in the course of the conversation, oh, you need financial assistance, you should call Sam Watson at the Sam Fund. Or you, you know, you want to talk to somebody. I mean, now we fortunately have Instapeer, but, you know, if you want to talk to somebody in person, you call, you hook them up with Johnny Emmerman at Emmerman Angels. And it was just very inefficient, one-on-one-on-one referrals. So hopefully this will make it a lot easier for everybody. Um 
and then after that it's this this process of of clarifying and quantifying the barriers you know what are the barriers that that young adult patients face and our our path our pathway audit initiative which we're calling in my shoes um we were going to call it walk a mile and then we thought wait that sounds like a fundraiser and I'm not, I'm not I'm maybe we should let's flip it. So it's the In My Shoes initiative where, you know, we'll have young adult patients in real time describing their path through the the cancer care system and and pointing out the places where um their needs are not met and um why for everything from, you know, is there Wi Fi in the waiting room or the infusion room to how old was your roommate to how does your doctor schedule their appointments, you know, all the ways that could be, you know, really tailored to the needs and, and um lives of a young adult. So and then of course our conference every year, the the biggest okay. gathering of young adult professional organizations and champions and stakeholders, which I don't know, it keeps me going. I just I love seeing everybody. You made me make a poster. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I love you. Made me make a poster. <laughs> I'm sure you made it all by yourself too. I did. I did. Kenny, is that true? Uh, approved. <laughs> Kenny approved it. No, we're going to have better outcomes here because we're doing outcomes research on Instapeer, like legit outcomes research on Instapeer, like like Dave Victorson, Brad Love kind of stuff. Uh, those are the names I'm throwing out there on the radio, but those are two of the, the most in, in, intelligent, engaged social scientists, behavioral PhD research folks in the young adult cancer space. And they're working with us on our mobile app, Instapeer, um, for actual published quality of life outcomes for usability and and that will be our post for next year I guarantee you. And that is super exciting and we can't wait to share that data, you know, as broadly and widely as we possibly can. I mean, that's awesome. And that's, you know, that's how you know the field is matured, right? Yep. When someone takes Kenny seriously. Yes. That's the problem. <laughs> I take Kenny seriously. <laughs> there you go. You're the one. We heard about you. <laughs> All right, uh, not not a quick final question, but just another question, basically. Uh, with all of the uh, young adult clinics popping up around the country, is there a standard by which they're being measured, or are they all kind of like in this free market right now, and whichever model works out best is going to be the winner, so to speak? I mean, it's a – I guess it is a free market kind of um, – scenario right now but i think there are standards you know the nccn has guidelines and um there there are there's white papers on on what a program should look like what training should look like but there also there 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 isn't going to ever be i don't think one model that's going to be able to be replicated everywhere because every institution and center is, is very different and the path to acceptance and institutionalization of the young adult activities or program is going to be different for every place. So I think we're going to see um, a variety of different models popping up and cropping up, and then hopefully um, 
we'll be able to share best practices and knowledge from all of these places through critical mass and through our networks um, so that people can learn from each other and adapt, you know, what's working well at one institution might also work well at another institution. So, you know, I think you're going to see a bunch of different things. Um, it depending on the different setting, whether it's academic or community, there'll be very, very different different programs or approaches. But there's going to be, I think, um, key components that places will address in different ways. So perhaps you'll have a fertility consult service in your cancer center, but if you're a community um, hospital or, or cancer treatment center, you might just have a relationship with um, a fertility uh, reproductive endocrinologist or someone in the community, and you might have a referral path back and forth. So, you know, that's just one example of a key component, fertility preservation, that could be addressed in a number of different ways depending on the setting, but it should be addressed. And will, there will be others like that as well. Right. And just the fact that we've been having this conversation is, is almost unfathomable considering where we were a decade ago. Right. Absolutely. So uh I, I just I wanna thank you again for your all your service for helping pave my way to where I am today. I, I do mean that sincerely. And uh for just being like like you said, the, the uberest champion uh for the young adult cause since even before one existed. Perhaps. Well, we help each other. I mean, it's like like you said, it's it's a community and we all help each other and I think to me that's one of the coolest things about the young adult cancer advocacy community is, you know, everyone helps each other and we all support each other because, you know, back in the day, you know, there was no one else to support us. <laughs> and so we stuck together pretty close, right? And so now it's it's I think that has carried through to the the next generation and, and I love it. And I'm just so excited to see where we're all gonna go. It's great. We've been speaking with Heidi Schultz Adams, a twenty year survivor of Ewing sarcoma, the original uh young adult cancer advocate, founder of Planet Cancer and currently president and CEO of Critical Mass, the Young Adult Cancer Alliance, online at criticalmass.org and tweeting at HeyCriticalMass. Heidi, thank you so much for joining us once again. I look forward to talking with you soon. Bye, Heidi. Thank you, guys. Take care. Heidi Adams, everyone. Another good show. Oh, yeah. It is amazing, the progress. I mean, it's palpable. You can really feel what has changed in, in the decade and I, I would there's nothing else to hearken it to because there's really been no other massive upsurge of grassroots advocacy in oncology there's been the same old stuff it's still important stuff and i'm not demeaning it but in terms of patient outcomes and awareness and something that emerged from nothing and mariah you're a part of this the young adult cancer movement yeah. entitlements its deservedness its civil liberties and it's fascinating. So again, I think the biggest barometer is that you are no longer working in your pajamas every day. Yeah, I was this morning because I'm sick, but that's beside the point. There you go. Too much information on the air. <laughs> yes. In any case. We'll edit it out. Yeah. Well, anyway, thank you, everyone, for a great show. Uh, Mariah, any final comments? Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm totally inspired. 
We love. Are you, all right, fine. Now you're stuck forever here. I know. You, you can't leave anymore. <laughs> you have to make I was warned. Yeah, I want a wig. I want a wig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no problem. All right. Well, now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepared to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray! I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. <laughs> That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 330th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did. Talking a stick. Uh, super cancer. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, Mariah Dearman and Heidi Adams. Next week's show, all about the Affordable Care Act. Yes, Obamacare. Hate it. Affordable Care Act. Love it. Guess what, folks? They're the same damn thing. The Affordable Care Act is one of the most important pieces of health care legislation in our nation's history. Join us as we discuss the existing ongoing challenges with implementation, state-specific information, and issues with enrollment in marketplaces with cancer rights attorney and co-founder and CEO of Triage Cancer, Monica Bryant. Survivor Spotlight on Ben Regal. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check the show out anytime online at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of myself and the whole Stupid Cancer crew here, Kenny Kane, Mallory Rivera, and Sean Spiro, thanks for listening to another great show. We'll see you back here next Monday, live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Take it easy. Good night, everybody.